Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. We're all here for the big post-debate spectacular. Uh, before we dive in, we do have some exciting news. The crew of Crooked Media has been working on a brand new top-secret podcast for a little while now. And we finally got the green light to hint at what's coming. We're announcing all the details early next week. But if you want to be the first to know what we're up to, you got to sign up for the newsletter, which is just fantastic. Fantastic. We got Sarah Lazarus uh, on board now writing it. Brian Boitler, as always, the whole crew here. It's fantastic. You can sign up at crooked.com slash subscribe um, to find out about our new podcast. We're really excited about it, and we think you will be, too. Uh, also, a little plug for the 2019 elections that are coming up in a month. Democrats have a chance to make big gains in Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Virginia, where we need to flip just four seats to win the legislature and the chance to draw fair congressional districts in 2021. Uh, gun reform, all kinds of good stuff could come from uh, from winning Virginia. So head to votesaveamerica.com where you can donate to our fuck gerrymandering fund and find out volunteer opportunities in these states, some that you can do right from the comfort of your home. Hmm. All right, let's get to the news. Last night in Westerville, Ohio, the Democrats held their fourth and largest primary debate in history, featuring 12 candidates. Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, Andrew Yang, Cory Booker, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, Julian Castro, Tulsi Gabbard, and Tom Steyer shared the stage for three hours. Three hours. That's normal, right? Usually you get more de- people in debates as you, they go on in primary. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny, And they though? get longer. By, yeah, right. right before Iowa, there will be a seven-hour debate with all 50 candidates. I will say, though, <laughs> even though there were a lot of people on the stage and it was three hours long, it actually only felt like three hours. <laughs> felt like five to me. <laughs> it I, felt like I, exactly three hours. One hour in, I saw John Harwood tweet, well, that's an hour. We got two left. And I nearly started crying. <laughs> it was long. Um, it, was, uh, it was hosted by CNN and the New York Times. The moderators were Anderson Cooper and Aaron Burnett of CNN and Mark Lacey of the New York Times. So, guys, this was the first debate where Elizabeth Warren was, if not a frontrunner, co-frontrunner. Um, and she was, you know, <laughs> what does that mean? it's about, it's, it's a tie. It's like a tie in the average right Two-way now. Two-way tie for first. Two-way tie for first between her and Biden. And uh, she was challenged more than she ever has been before by almost every candidate on stage. Um, so, Which is a lot of people. It's a lot of people. <laughs> so uh, let's listen to her first exchange with Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar over, you guessed it, Medicare for All. Your signature, Senator, is to have a plan for everything except this. 
No plan has been laid out to explain how a multi-trillion dollar hole in this Medicare for All plan that Senator Warren is putting forward is supposed to get filled in. And a part of that is we Thank have you, got Senator. to stop Sen- Americans from going bankrupt over health care Senator Klobuchar, do you want to respond? Uh, yes, I do. And I appreciate Elizabeth's work. But again, um, the difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. And we can get this public option done and we can take on the pharmaceutical companies and bring down the prices. But what really bothers me about this discussion, which we've had so many times, is that we don't talk about the things that I'm hearing about from regular Americans. OK, first question. Why do we keep having these exchanges every single debate? Are, will we be having them forever about Medicare for all? <laughs> What a good question. Um, Well, I feel like there's two parts of it. One is, uh, I I guess, here's here's the question I had when I watched that exchange. So we've had this conversation four times now Mm -hmm. in four different debates. Almost verbatim. And there are two parts to it. The one part is the public option candidates trying to find a way to criticize Medicare for all without seeming like wet blankets. And I think each time they've been trying different tacks at this. And then the second piece of it is that Elizabeth Warren is refusing to say something very specific and everyone on that stage knows what's going on. She does not want to say on camera that according to the Bernie plan, taxes will rise for the middle class because she is making a bigger argument that on the whole, costs for the middle class will go down, and she does not want to create video of herself saying that, which will be used as a cudgel in the general uh, to misleadingly tell uh, middle class voters that she's going to cost them more money because her broader point is correct. Under Medicare for all, even if your taxes go up, uh, overall your health care costs will go down further than your taxes will go up because the cost will be shifted, uh, will be progressive and shifted up towards the wealthy. And we've kind of been trapped in a loop on this, but the difference with this debate is this time, I think we had the most sophisticated debaters coming at her on this, which which are which are Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete, two people that if they were a high school debating team would be fucking, I think, <laughs> like ferocious. Yeah, they would be. I mean, they, they may be our one. They, they see they, these guys smell some blood in the water here politically for Warren. Right. I mean. There, there's two parts of this. One, there's the cost of Medicare for all, which is an attack on both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. But the critique for Warren is broader and it becomes about her credibility. I was just reading a gaggle Biden did today, Wednesday morning, where he is doubling, tripling down on this and just hammering her at a stop in Columbus, Ohio. So, you know, that's why Pete is focused on the cost of, of Medicare for all and the lack of specificity. Michael Bennett is running, I think, like a million dollars worth of ads uh, against Medicare for all in Iowa. And I think it becomes even more challenging for Warren and everybody on stage knows this because the contrast of her answer with Bernie just being like, yep, going to raise taxes. It's part of the plan is pretty stark when you're like toe tapping for 10, 15, 30 minutes or your her entire CNN interview after the debate was about this too. Bet she wishes that uh, Bernie never said that about the taxes going yeah, sure. up. And, and if you'll notice, Bernie said that once before a couple of debates ago and has not said it since. <laughs> Dan, what do you think? The ultimate irony of this is Elizabeth Warren's going to dance around this in every debate till the end of time. And then if she's the nominee, the Trump campaign will just create a deep fake of her saying it, <laughs> run an ad on Facebook. It'll get 10 million views. And Mark Zuckerberg refused to take it down. So that's where we're ending it. <laughs> Shit. Thanks, do Dan. you think it's sustainable, Dan, for her to continue this um, – with this answer for the whole primary. No, I don't think it's sustainable because it's not about the financing of 
Medicare for all. That's not that's that's no part of the actual conversation. People are harping on this because it is the first crack in the armor that she has offered. She has put so much and so successfully put so much stock in to this persona as a incredibly courageous, policy-oriented, detail-oriented person with a plan for everything. And here we have on her biggest, most expensive plan a huge hole, and she's dancing around it, obviously. And it makes her look like a typical politician. And the fact that she has seemed different than other politicians has been her strength. And so they're going to keep people are going to keep hammering this on her. And the other point about this conversation, both this question, the larger Medicare for all conversation, as it relates to Elizabeth Warren, is it's a proxy for electability. Mm. They want to say that that Medicare for all is bad politically, and it makes her in your it makes her more likely to lose if she's the nominee. And they're proving that because she can't answer a fundamental question that everyone knows will be asked every single day by every reporter in the general election. Let me ask, what would you guys do if you were on the Warren campaign um, next time you face this question? I mean, I, I, or eventually to get out of this box, right? You were saying it's not sustainable. Um, it did seem like, you know, the, the strategy on both sides was pretty apparent last night. We talked about the strategy on the public option side. On the, on, for, for Bernie and Elizabeth... Warren, uh, the strategy was every time the public option folks sort of got into the details about cost and sort of accused them of, accused Warren of not being uh, honest about the taxes, they would sort of bring it back to the system is fundamentally broken. Insur- the private insurance companies are awful. They make money by denying care. Um, there's a lot of people in this country who can't afford health insurance. So they, they brought it back to the problem with the current private health insurance, but that's a, but that's about all. That, that's where they went. They didn't go anywhere else. What, where would you go? I think there would be benefit in Elizabeth Warren being honest about this. She has to like she is exactly right. To be very clear, she is right about costs, and it is dumb and sort of operating in a Reagan esque political frame to think about this in, in the context of taxes only and not overall costs for families. But it is also a fact that every policy is winners and losers. And there will be some people whose taxes go up more than their health care costs come down. And I think she would, because she's been so honest about all of her other policies, having an answer that took on more aggressively the problem with the framing of that question, but then gave a little ground on taxes will go up for some people, almost entirely the wealthy. But there will, like that, I think that there is, I just think when she says the, the same answer over and over again in every debate for the rest of time, that is not going to wear well. And so there needs to be some sort of pivot that gives a little ground here. Yeah. And, I, and I do think to the original question about, like, why do we keep going over this time and time again? It's a proxy for electability, but also we've all been in primaries before. It is difficult to find policy differences in a primary. When you do find on a, a policy difference, it becomes the opportunity to differentiate yourself from the other candidate. I mean, we spent a month in 2008 in the primary, uh, arguing with Hillary Clinton over a gas tax holiday. Oh my God. <laughs> Remember? Uh, because it was one... weird. Yeah, because it was... 2008 feeling it, in my stomach. It was a... It, we made it a huge deal. We made the individual mandate in the healthcare plan an enormous deal Not in the primary. Not just individual mandate. Individual mandate versus automatic enrollment. <laughs> right. And so that, like, this is why this, kept, this keeps getting brought up because there aren't a ton of other big issues going forward where the candidates have big disagreements. I do think, Dan, to your point about um, where Warren should go from here, I think if she is more granular about 
taxes and costs and and specific about the plan, it will also give her the opportunity to point to the other candidates and say, you have trade-offs in your plan as well. Like, I don't know that either Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren have been sharp enough on the deficiencies in the or the trade-offs in the other plans. Because, yeah, there's trade-offs on Medicare for all. There's costs, there's taxes, there's all this kind of stuff. There's also trade-offs in Pete's plan, in Amy Klobuchar's plan, in Biden's plan, right? Like, they don't cut costs in the healthcare system as much as the Sanders and Warren plan. Their plans are more expensive. Other people are going to pay more out-of-pocket in their plans than they are in Sanders and Warren. Like, there's just, you know, there's they trade-offs. Don't, this was, I think, the most sophisticated debate we've had, but it's still not really getting at the pros and cons of a public option versus Medicare for all and why they actually do believe it is a better system in which people transition from private insurance. One thing I was thinking about when I was watching them is like Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg are really fucking smart. And Pete specifically, I think, has thought a lot about how can I be on the attack without giving ground on policy? How can I go after Elizabeth Warren without seeming like I'm throwing a wet blanket on boldness? It's same thing what he tried to do with, with Beto later on. And it is the this is the one place where the, the script is kind of flipped. For the past three debates, what we've seen is I think the bolder, more left candidates attacking kind of the 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 moderation and lack of uh, kind of and the nuance of some of the other candidates on the stage. And this is the one place where that sort of is flipped, where what they're actually doing is they're saying, you're being political. You're the political one now. I'm the honest, bold change maker. You're political. And I think that's why ultimately it's such a good attack and why it's not sustainable for her to stay where she's at. The other reason we go around the bend on this is the debates and the conversation in the campaigns are always focused on legislation you pass, which is really a dumb way to think about the president. So we know having worked there, that you can do so much more with executive authority. Now, obviously, they spend time talking about foreign policy, which is something the president can do on their own, but there should be more of a conversation, about, not about the bills that no candidate is likely to pass in the form in which they're proposed, and more about how they would go about fixing the healthcare system on their own. How would they repair Obamacare? Who would Wouldn't they appoint that, that, to these jobs? Which would be a very refreshing question and debate. <laughs> the pen and phone <laughs> You debate. know, like, ha- asking them all, let's say that Mitch McConnell holds the Senate and there's a Republican Senate, what are you going to do to improve the healthcare system? It would be very mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, it's, I, it's, I do think, back to your point, Lovett, there's a difference between Klobuchar and Pete, which I want to raise here. Klobuchar has been moderate from the start. This has been her her whole theory of the case. Maybe she hasn't made the argument as sharply as she has, as she did last night in the fourth debate, which I thought she was very sharp. Pete, Pete back in February was arguing that Medicare for all is the compromise position and the center of the political debate because it involves private hospitals and doctors, but public a public payer. And a lot of liberals and people on the left said, oh, that's a very interesting way to frame it for Pete. Pete also said many times about Republicans it's time to stop worrying about what the Republicans will say because they'll accuse us of being crazy socialists no matter what kind of policies we propose, so we might as well propose the policies that are right. So the fact that he came out of the gate and became so popular by being this bold, progressive truth-teller, and now he's looking to be the more moderate alternative to Joe Biden, I think opens up a vulnerability for him as we go forward that Warren or Sanders or some of the other more progressive candidates could easily exploit. Yeah, I mean, he probably benefits by being one of many people attacking Elizabeth Warren last night. But I was surprised that we saw so much uh, angry Pete last night because I don't think it served him well. I don't know that it did. I mean, look, we'll find out. I don't know that did either. I mean, Dan, I saw you talking about this on, on Twitter. Like he has two choices when you're in third or fourth place. You have the choice of attacking and losing or not attacking. So like you have to do something to to shake up your campaign. But I mean. 
to John's point, I think if you're going to attack someone's honesty and credibility when you yourself have changed significantly on policy, that's a challenge. And when you're going to sound a little bit harsh in tone, when you have been sort of bring everybody together, this is why they hate Washington, stop the food fights guy, it felt a little disjointed with the previous part of his campaign. I think I have a different take. I I don't think he came off as angry. I think this Hmm. was his best debate. And, to the, and I say that not because his performance was as good, right? Because that's often how we judge. We're like, well, Cory Booker was incredibly likable, and he had some mm-hmm. good moments. He knows what his strategy is. He knows what he thinks his lane is, and he executed it aggressively. He is trying to change the dynamic of a race. He's really, of the most of the cancel stage there, have no plan to win, right? They just really don't. He has a path. He has figured it out. That is, re- is 100% true. He, yeah. requ- he does. I he mean. Is re- he, it has required him to make some adjustments from where he was. But he... Yeah, that's... You just sort of over that. Yeah. But every candidate does that, right? <laughs> okay. And like, and I think it, like we should watch it very carefully. Like, There's an existential question about how much these debates matter in terms of changing public opinion, but they are very helpful in understanding how candidates see the race. The question is, are the adjustments natural and do they seem authentic or do they seem calculated and i don't and i don't know you're right like that we are we are way too in this we pay attention to this way too closely it is very possible that for most people who watch the debate they just saw a really strong performance from pete he executed on a lot of answers very very well but there's a little bit of like you know for the last couple weeks a lot of pundits out there being like pete's got a get into that moderate lane. Pete's got to be more aggressive in these debates. And then he shows up and he's in the moderate lane and more aggressive in these debates. And, you know, I saw Liz Smith, uh, his communications person on Twitter last night, tweet out. um, She's like, for all the people who are saying that Pete couldn't throw or take a punch, tonight's, you know, tonight shows you otherwise. And it's like, okay, well, that's that's even more (laughs) leaning into like, all right, you told us to do this and now we're doing it. Well, I also, though, I actually think what's more important to me is not, did he throw a punch or not? And even not, what were the attacks? What was he trying to say about Warren or Beto or any other people he kind of mixed it up with? It's more, what does it say about him as a candidate, right? So the the aggressiveness is a means to get attention. What is he saying? So when he goes after Elizabeth Warren about being evasive, he's saying, I'm the honest Midwestern truth teller. When he goes after Beto on guns, he's saying, I'm the only one being honest about what we can actually achieve, right? Like you start to see the attacks are a vehicle for the message that he's now trying to say. And I think it's actually the mo- like we have seen debate after debate, the more moderate candidates struggle to figure out how to not uh, fall into the to seem kind of, you know, squishy compared to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. It's happened again and again. I think that that to me is the takeaway on Pete, that he is thinking about how to be a angry, bold moderate. I thought Pete was like aggressive and compelling on Syria, for example. Yes. yes. He knew his shit. He was righteous. It was his best moment. It worked. And maybe the best moment of the night. Yeah, it, it was really impressive. I, I just do think like, you know, he, the, the front runners in Iowa are like 20, 21, 22%. He's sitting at 14%, which is really kind of great place to be at this point in the race. And there is a risk if suddenly all the Warren people are like, what the fuck? He was being a dick to her last night. And all the Biden people think that. And all the Beto people, you know, it's like there is a risk to being too negative too early. Oh, for sure. That's and I, look, and I, I think he was not as aggressive as Castro was with Biden in the last yeah. debate, or as we're going to talk about, Biden was with Warren at the end of 
last night's debate over the fucking Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was like way too much. <laughs> that was bad. But there were there were like I think it, Pete's walking a fine line here, and I think there were flashes of annoyance and aggressiveness that were a little much. But he 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 mainly kept it. <laughs> he mainly kept it in the right place. But it was a, a diffuse, few times. He it was a diffuse uh, tool that he was using. It was like it was like. Now's the time where I'm going to make this point by contrasting myself with you. But if you actually like dig into the actual con, you're like, what are you actually saying here? What yeah, is your actual disagreement? It's not really, I kind of, it falls apart in your fingers. Well, that's my thing is that I think, I think Warren was maybe not as prepared as she'll be next time to sort of tear into some of Pete's inconsistencies. <laughs> well, that's I don't think the she handled them. I don't think she handled them as well as she could last night. That, I think that's the question for Pete, which is now he has got like the page has turned. For a long time, he was the inspiring, good news, non-threatening candidate, right? And now people – he is ma- he's making a play for other people's supporters. He's trying to take down Biden and Warren because he is the one candidate who is most likely to benefit from the fall of both of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so – and if you talk to reporters, you talk to people in the campaigns, almost universally, the, ca- the candidate in the campaign that all the other campaigns are most annoyed with is Pete. Yeah. And so I think – there's going to be several counterpunches over the next few days, and we'll have to see whether they're ready for it. Um, all right. Warren was also challenged on her wealth tax by Better O'Rourke and Amy Klobuchar. Let's take a listen. I think we need to be focused on lifting people up. And sometimes I think that Senator Warren is, is more focused on being punitive or, or pitting some part of the country against the other. Um, instead of lifting people up and making sure that this country comes together around those solutions. I want to give a reality check. Here to Elizabeth, because no one on this stage wants to protect billionaires. Not even the billionaire wants to protect billionaires. Uh, we just have different approaches. Your idea is not the only idea. And when I look at this, I think about Donald Trump, the guy that after that uh, tax bill passed, went to Mar-a-Lago, got together with his cronies and said, guess what? You guys all got a lot richer. That was the one time in his presidency he told the truth. So we have different ways. I would repeal significant portions of that tax bill that helped the rich, including what he did with the corporate tax rate, including what he did on international taxation. You add it all up, you got a lot of money. That one helps pay for that child care, protects that dignity of work, make sure we have decent retirement, and make sure that our kids can go to good schools. It is not one idea that rules here. This was a moment where I was like, I don't understand what we're arguing about. Like, does Elizabeth Warren does not support the Trump tax cuts. What she is responding to is this idea that if you're not for Warren's wealth tax, then you are pro-billionaire, which right. is an argument that both Bernie, who has a similar wealth tax, and Warren have made, certainly implicitly and sometimes explicitly. And Klobuchar's position, which I think she delivered very well, is there are other ways to get that. And no one here is pro-billionaire. Even Tom Steyer is taxing himself at $50 million yeah. in order to run a campaign. I thought Klobuchar's answer was the sharper one there and, and made sense. Better's, well, we can talk about better's answer in a second, but well, go ahead. Well, what Amy Klobuchar is saying there is we can do a lot of good by repealing the Trump tax cuts. But I don't think anyone on that stage really disagrees with that. She made a compelling argument for why we should repeal those tax cuts, but I don't understand. like Because she, she's just saying, I don't think the wealth tax works and, and the way to get the money we need is to repeal the Trump tax cuts. I, that's I guess position. I guess that's what I'm saying. Like, she didn't make an argument against Elizabeth Warren's plan. She made an argument for something that everybody on that stage would do anyway. That's true. No one has, no one except for Beto's weird argument um, was 
talking about why the wealth tax specifically is bad. The reason that, and we didn't play the first part about Beto's answer, the reason that Beto's answer was so fucking confusing and basically nonsensical was they asked Beto, do you support a wealth tax? And he said, yeah, I think that's part of the solution. And then he was like, I'm worried that Elizabeth Warren is punitive. Yeah, He's trying to make the point that Elizabeth Warren is too divisive. And right. He, but he didn't have the facts to, he didn't Like This is also Pete's argument. Right. He this was implicit throughout the entire debate. And more and Klobuchar's to another extent is we need we need a candidate who can unify the country when this is all over, both to win the election and fix all the fucking problems Trump did. And the argument, which I think is unfair, but is that Warren is too divisive to do that. And I just think the wealth tax is a terrible it is way to make that argument. Maybe the worst way to make the argument. The polling on the wealth tax is latest polling from June is 66% of people in this country think it's a good idea. It'll bring the country together. <laughs> Specifically, Elizabeth Warren. The question is, Elizabeth Warren has proposed a wealth tax. It was very specific. 66% agree, 30% disagree. 55% of Republicans think it's a good idea. 43% yeah. disagree. Warren, you could talk all day long about the vulnerabilities of Medicare for all and the position on taking Medicare for all. There are no no political vulnerabilities in being for a wealth tax. There just aren't. It yeah. should be in the Democratic Party platform in the 2020 convention, whether Elizabeth Warren's a nominee or not. There's no data that shows it. Show me data that shows it's politically problematic. I'm no policy wonk, but I think uh, hammering billionaires is pretty good politics. And let's take a moment. <laughs> you, don't, you don't even need the polls. <laughs> even the billionaire on stage thinks it's good politics. Let's take a moment to say, I think it's so exciting because Tom Steyer spent $48 million to get on that stage. <laughs> and it was so nice of everybody to kind of make him part of it, you know, <laughs> because like when you pay for a VIP ticket like that, like sometimes you don't know if you're really going to feel like it was worth it but then like the fact that amy made a joke about him like made him part of the show i think was really cool divisive tie i kind of liked it plaid tie. tie i like a plaid tie. Cool. i think there's a backstory of the tie yeah right? he wears it all the time yeah. wonderful um <laughs> This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone. You got to work it out. Get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash streaming. netsuite.com slash streaming.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Later in the night, Warren was even challenged by Kamala Harris on her reluctance to call on Twitter to ban Donald Trump's account. Let's take a listen. Senator Warren, I just want to say that I was surprised to hear that you did not agree with me that on this subject of what should be the rules around corporate responsibility for these big tech companies, when I called on Twitter to suspend Donald Trump's uh, account, that you did not agree. And I would, I would urge you to join me because here we have Donald Trump who has 65 million Twitter followers and is using that platform as the president of the United States to openly intimidate witnesses, to threaten witnesses, to obstruct justice. And he and his account should be taken down. We saw in El Paso that that shooter in his manifesto was informed by how Donald Trump uses that platform. And this is a matter of corporate responsibility. Twitter should be held accountable and shut down that site. It is a matter of safety and corporate accountability. Thank you, Senator Warren, you can respond. So look, I don't just wanna push Donald Trump off Twitter, I wanna push him out of the White House. That's our job. But the way- Join me in saying that his Twitter account should be shut down. Let's figure out- No? So. We didn't hear the very beginning of that, but that whole thing started with Elizabeth Warren talking about sort of breaking up Facebook and and tech regulation. And then Kamala sort of gets herself ready and says, you know, Senator Warren, I called on uh, Twitter to take down the account and and I saw that you refused to join me on this. Why? So she she specifically decided to just kind of take make a challenge to Elizabeth Warren about this issue. Why do we think she did this? Uh, Yeah, I mean, so I I criticized this uh, line, maybe a little too harshly on Twitter, heard from some folks on Kamala's team. Look, I, I like Kamala Harris a lot. I thought she had a, a really great line on the assault weapons ban when, when she brought up reproductive health. I thought it was really compelling and powerful. Um, those are big, important issues, right? The fact that we have a white nationalist president who is inciting violence against others, I think is a big, important issue that is worthy of discussion on that stage. But I think the solution of shutting down his Twitter account by appealing to Jack Dorsey is is small and will not solve it. I mean, just he'll, he can go on Facebook, he can go on Instagram, he can do big rallies, he can hold a press conference, right? Like we have to beat Donald Trump by appealing to voters, not by appealing to Jack Dorsey, in my opinion. So, um, Right. But like this is a debate. Everything is planned and designed for political advantage. And so even just from like a a tactical perspective, I don't think strategically this was the issue I would have taken up against Elizabeth Warren. I'm not dismissing the the issue of abuse uh, of people on Twitter, but I don't think it's going to drive a lot of support her way. It seemed sort of pre-calculated and it seems smaller than the issue of the way Facebook specifically has distorted our democracy. And like, it wasn't also just like one little moment, right? Like when you say something like that, you know, all the reporters going to pick it up because they live on Twitter. And I watched her post-debate interview on CNN and on MSNBC. And this was the focus of both of those conversations, like three questions in a row on both networks. So it's just not the thing I would have wanted to be talking about today. I was also pretty critical of it. And, you know, actually, you know, Kara Swisher, I talked to her on Love or Leave It about this. And she actually makes a really good argument for why Trump's account 
should be taken down from Twitter. Actually, the argument she's really making is Twitter should enforce its rules. And by any fair, objective reading of Twitter's policies, Donald Trump violates them all the time. And he does so in a way that incites violence and hate uh, and could even lead to like genuine harm and, and, and threats and, and, and fear for people. And it does every single day. That's absolutely true. Elizabeth Warren was making a larger argument about the structural problems in our economy, the ways in which big tech companies and monopolies are influencing our politics and influencing our society and the dangers that that poses and the importance of, of, of regulation. And Kamala Harris was saying that Donald Trump should be banned from Twitter and, and Twitter should observe its, its terms of service. Fine. But she was also using it as an opportunity to draw contrast, right? She didn't make an argument for removing Trump from Twitter. She took an opportunity to try to kind of put Elizabeth Warren on notice to draw a contrast, to make a moment out of it. And I found that ultimately not, (laughs) I just didn't find it reflected well of Kamala Harris, who I think is a much better candidate than that, who's had incredibly strong debates in the past, who can make a a compelling argument against Donald Trump, who can be bigger. Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. If Kamala Harris had said, um, by the way, you know, now that we're since we're talking about tech, big tech and its responsibility, I've called on Jack to shut down Donald Trump's account. And I hope everyone on this stage will join me in saying that. I don't think she would have gotten any criticism over it. I don't think anyone would have thought it was small. It seemed I, I never begrudge someone for taking a position that they really believe in and are passionate about, you know, even if it's something that I disagree with because they just genuinely believe in it. Where I where I worry is when candidates seem like they are trying to calculate a moment or a lane or a position or something like that. And I look, I realize that's campaigns. You do that on campaigns, right? But sometimes it's clumsier than other times, right? Like we just said that, that Pete's, I believe that Pete's transition here has been a little clumsy and a little obvious. And I think in that moment, Kamala Harris getting herself ready, turning to Elizabeth Warren, pointing to her to try to bring out the contrast was what that was about. Like I, like I said, if she had just stood up and said, everyone on the stage should join me in this, it would have been different. It, it was, would have been different. It was a stunt. It is the definition of a stunt. It was a pre-planned moment for her to not just make a case for something important, which is trying to de-platform uh, violent and racist rhetoric. It was about trying to take a shot at Elizabeth Warren. And at a time when Elizabeth Warren was making a pretty big and important argument about large forces in our society, in our economy, the kind of the place where she's strongest as a candidate. And, uh, you know, I, I just I find it really disappointing because I think one of the things we've talked about many times is how strong a candidate we believe Kamala Harris to be. We saw that in the first debate when she really, you know, struck at Joe Biden in a way that showed the kind of strength she has as a candidate. But what we've also talked about all along is we sometimes don't understand the larger justification for why she's running for president. And the question I would have for 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 Senator Harris would be, what does this say about the kind of president you'll be that you think this is the big issue to draw contrast with on Elizabeth Warren? I mean, yeah. And look, I Every candidate. This is this is the problem. As we get this deep into the primary, is that all of the candidates who are not front runners are being told by everyone they know and everyone who's working for them and everyone who's consulting them that like you got to draw a contrast. You got to have a moment to get uh, to get out front here. And it's not just Kamala. Like a lot of them are doing that. And you know, it's just it's tough to watch because so many of them seem pre-planned and it's just like it's an extra level of artifice on the process that I think is, you know, it's just obvious sometimes. 
The only other thing I would add to this very long conversation about this topic is that, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, is if we're thinking about what to be really concerned about the behavior of tech companies as relates to politicians and Donald Trump, it is Facebook's policy that allows politicians, most notably Donald Trump, to lie in ads. Yeah, right. And basically use Facebook's immense amount of data to target disinformation at the voters that Facebook tells them are most likely to fall for that disinformation. And that is in like a massive threat to democracy. And I don't think that should be a point of contrast between the candidates, but I think it is an issue that should be raised and Facebook should have to be held accountable for. And it, the presidential can, candidates can help do that. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, we talked about Pete earlier, who was particularly dominant and, and, and more aggressive than usual. And in one of his most praised moments of the night, I think rightly, he and fellow veteran Tulsi Gabbard debated the role our military should play in defending our Kurdish allies in Syria. Let's take a listen. The slaughter of the Kurds being done by Turkey is yet another negative consequence of the regime change war that we've been waging in Syria. Donald Trump has the blood of the Kurds on his hand, but so do many of the politicians in our country from both parties who have supported this ongoing regime change war in Syria that started in 2011 along with many in the mainstream media who have been championing and cheerleading this regime change war. Respectfully, Congresswoman, I think that is dead wrong. The slaughter going on in Syria is not a consequence of American presence. It's a consequence of a withdrawal and a betrayal by this president of American allies and American values. Look, I didn't think we should have gone to Iraq in the first place. I think we need to get out of Afghanistan, but it's also the case that a small number of specialized special operations forces and intelligence capabilities were the only thing that stood between that part of Syria and what we're seeing now, which is the beginning of a genocide and the resurgence of ISIS. Meanwhile, soldiers in the field are reporting that for the first time they feel ashamed, ashamed of what their country has done. So, Tommy, what, what, first of all, what's wrong with Tulsi's argument? And, and what is her overall? What is, it's hard to pin down her worldview here. <laughs> yeah. So she's saying that Turkey is uh, invading Syria and killing the Kurds, our allies, because of a, quote, regime change war that we've been re- waging in Syria. Yeah, she said that a lot. She used that phrase a lot. Yeah, she referred to a regime change war in Yemen as well. That's just not accurate, right? When Obama was president, he called on President Assad to go. But there was no effort to, uh, you know, march towards Damascus and take him out. That just that never happened. So she's just totally she's just totally wrong. And in fact, the northeastern part of Syria has been occupied by these Kurdish forces, and things have been relatively safe and relatively calm there for you know since basically the Kurds uh, and the international coalition waged this campaign against ISIS and took back Raqqa and all these other places. So I don't know what the fuck she's talking about. And then she starts talking about how the New York Times and CNN smeared her for calling for an end. So it's like, it's just so loaded with grievance. And to use this moment uh, on this huge stage when you are a veteran and you have you know, experience uh, serving the military and, and you know some knowledge of the region and, and to make it about yourself and the way you were treated by a, a CNN commenter just so misses the point. I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, and I think the reason that Pete's answer was so effective aside from the fact that he just delivered it really well and it was strong and forceful um was anytime someone on stage makes an argument that seems like trump's argument which she basically did and then you can say don't make trump's argument you know is a pretty powerful moment and i think pete seized on that pretty pretty quickly 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the 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 first applause line of the night, I made fun of him earlier, a bit sharply. Uh, but like Tom Steyer's, the first time the audience broke and agreed to applaud when they were kind of, I think, maybe told not to. Yeah. And to the chagrin of the candidates with their prepped applause lines, just sort of going into just fucking <laughs> so That was crickets. awkward. Where yeah. is our laugh track? Yeah, really yeah. tough. But it was when he said, let's remember we're all, every person on the stage is a decent person who would be a far better president than Donald Trump. And we should all just keep that in mind. Like it was... It was, a, I thought, a very gracious way for Tom Steyer to introduce himself and a reminder, too, of, like, the stakes. I think sometimes in these debates, especially with so many people on stage, you lose sight of that. And what Pete did was, I think, recenter the focus on the actual stakes of this and just how damaging Donald Trump is and how unpatriotic he is. And I think that was incredibly powerful and probably the best moment Pete's had across all the debates. Yeah, I agree. Uh, another heated exchange was between Pete and Beto O'Rourke, who continued the fight they've been having about Beto's proposal to have the government buy back every assault weapon in America. Let's listen. I, mean, I want to make sure we have universal background checks and red flag laws and that we end the sale of these weapons of war. But to use the analogy of health care, it would be as though we said, look, we're, we're for primary care, but let's not talk about mental health care because that's a, a bridge too far. P- people need that primary care now. So let's save that for another day. No, let's decide what we are going to believe in, what we are going to achieve. And then let's bring this country together in order to do that. Listening to my fellow Americans, to those moms who demand action, to those students who march for our lives, who, in fact, came up with this extraordinary, bold Thank peace you, plan that calls for mandatory buybacks. Let's follow their inspiration and lead and not be limited by the polls and the consultants and the focus groups. Let's Mayor do what's Buttigieg, right while we have response. time to do what's right. Mayor Buttigieg. The problem is in the polls. The problem is the policy. And I don't need lessons from you on courage, political or personal. Everyone on this stage is determined to get something done. Everyone on this stage recognizes, or at least I thought we did, that the problem is not other Democrats who don't agree with your particular idea of how to handle this. The problem is the National Rifle Association and their enablers in Congress, and we should be united in taking the fight to them. All right, so who is more persuasive here on, on this, Beto or Pete? I think Beto. Beto was making an argument about policy with passion. Pete was making an argument about legislative strategy and how the Republicans react to our proposals which, as we've noted in the terms of Pete's awkward transitions, is the exact opposite of the argument that he's been, he made through the beginning of this campaign, that we should say what we believe and then make that sell the voters and not try to change our rhetoric to adjust to the Republican talking points that are coming. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear if you were to be inside the Buttigieg campaign that none of them were happy with Pete blurting out that Beto's position on this was chasing a shiny object. Right. Like it's just a dismissive thing to say. It's also, again, looking at the polling like we did in the wealth tax, um, you know, uh, mandatory buybacks, surprisingly to me, is a position that uh, a little over half the country agrees with. Right. It is not a very unpopular position. It's in fact, you know, it's not like a whole bunch of Republicans are for it. I'm sure it's harder in, in swing states and swing districts, but it's not terribly unpopular. Um, so to call it a shiny object does open you up to charges of, are you too worried about the polls, which Beto accused him of being, and then to come back at that by saying, don't, I don't need any lessons in courage from you, um, referencing his military service, struck me as a little much, particularly when Beto started, by, started the debate by praising Pete and Tulsi Gabbard for their military service and was making a point purely about polls and didn't even say the word courage, actually. Yeah. Seems right. The, no, but 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 it's interesting. Like this was one of those times where I was like, I'm trying to, like Pete is so, 
I just see what Pete's trying to avoid saying in the answer. And it's, and, and, you know, the, the, like, does Pete think, like, if, if, if he could make policy in a vacuum, would he support what Beto's doing? I don't know. I don't know the answer because he didn't want to address the actual substance of it. He didn't want to actually so get he said it. he did, which was funny. He was like, this isn't about the politics. This is about the policy, which I don't think is workable. Well, which, which is interesting, right? Like, and then it was this, this sort of kind of confusing conversation about the enforcing of the law, which I found like very kind of it was a weird question, weird, weird question and, and weird conversation that really I think was pretty hard to follow and didn't leave much of an impression. But uh, it's interesting. I think the thing that I contrast this with is what Pete said earlier uh, about, uh, like, you know, after Donald Trump is gone, the country will be incredibly divided. Do you really want to do you really want to create even more division by by uh, going for Medicare for all? I kind of I think that's a more honest argument. Right. Basically saying, like, I don't think it's worth the political capital to do Medicare for all. I'd rather do a public option and something else. I find that, I think, at least worthy of a debate. But his his pushback, I just it was just sort of a diffuse. I'm being honest. You're being uh, politically unrealistic. Uh, your boldness is a sign of ordinary politics. My lack of boldness is a sign of the fact that I, I tell it like it is, but it just wasn't telling it like it is because he was, you know, dancing through the various pitfalls of what he was saying. I'm sure there were people who think that the the courage line was was strong and well-delivered and, you know, compelling and sets Pete up well to throw a punch at Donald Trump that may or may not involve his military service. There are probably others who think that Beto O'Rourke's framing of making this about victims uh, of gun violence and March for Our Lives felt bigger, right, and made it not about him or the politics of the moment. Big, like, stepping back, like, I, I think they both landed some blows. It got them some attention, which I think probably net benefits both campaigns. But, like, longer term, Beto O'Rourke has... Uh, done a lot of great work on raising the issue of, of gun violence and gun control in this campaign. If he cannot find another chapter in this campaign, yeah. another set of issues to talk about, it will be over. And they need to know that, you know, like these candidates, like they all have to make the next debate or they're probably, uh, their campaign is not going to be able to raise any more money and they will essentially have to shut down. And like, if I were his team, I would be trying to figure out what is that next thing? How do I broaden this message that I've been delivering on guns about a whole other set of issues? I think there's a real debate to be had about the feasibility of mandatory buybacks, mm. right? Like it is a position that I support and I think Democrats should advocate. But there, there are real questions. How are you going to get these guns? What's the process? What's the penalty for people not doing it? Yeah. And like the, even Elizabeth Warren, right? And Bernie Sanders have not adopted this position, right? So this isn't necessarily a progressive litmus test. The and pro- also, we should note that Castro made a very interesting, Julian Castro made an interesting point on this, which is, I don't want to give the police another reason to be going door to door in communities, uh, especially communities of color, poor communities, um, with, you know, the problems we have with police violence, trying to take back guns, which is not an argument I had heard before. And, you know, interesting that he raised it. I think there are two elements of this. I think it is good when Democrats take positions that move the Overton window on these things. And I think this has done that because it is insane not just that people can buy AR-15s and other weapons of war, but that there's tens of thousands of them running around, you know, rolling around in our streets. My problem with Pete's argument is, is my most, un- it is the democratic argument that most annoys me. It is, it is 90s pre-Obama argument that we cannot, there are certain things we cannot say because they will, ex- they will upset Republican voters. That if we say this, they will turn out against us or it'll make the NRA want to spend more money or the Koch brothers want to spend more money. And any str- any discussion around 2020 that doesn't begin with the premise that every Republican voter will turn out 
is wrong. Like we should just say well, what we believe. One and pers- if you, and if you one person who's made that argument quite eloquently is Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> yeah. Again, <laughs> I'm just it's Pete should have just rolled out 30 to 50 feral hogs and said what the fuck are you going to do about that? Beto? Yeah. Because, and look, the same the same people, the same strategists and pundits who told Pete that he's got to be more aggressive and be in the moderate lane were also concerned when he made that argument about Republicans are going to call us crazy socialists anyway, so we might as well say what we believe. And they were concerned about it then, and then they've been pushing him to the moderate lane, and then he did it. Well, this is, I, this I is my problem being, with this. I mean, they do maybe align in this specific way that he does genuinely believe in a moderate approach to governing, and it is sincere belief that that's what we should be doing. But I don't until we get to pack in the courts. Well, no, right. but love it. See, that's interesting because if Pete's if Pete's only arguments last night were. Um, I'm for my Medicare for all who want it plan because I just think it's too expensive to do. I think the it's other a better thing. plan. I think it's a better plan. I don't like mandatory buybacks only because I think it's unworkable. Then he would be fine. There, the, I would not be criticizing it. Right. But he keeps bringing in it's too divisive. It's a shiny object. He keeps bringing the politics of this into his argument. And that's where his problem is because previously he said that politics shouldn't matter. If his only critiques of these progressive positions are policy-based, that's totally fine. Bringing the politics into it is is refuting himself from earlier in this Right, camp. I'm trying to think if there's any way to square it. Is there any way you can actually make this consistent from what he said before about not adopting Republican talking points and then not wanting to be too divisive? I mean, every candidate has this problem. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Elizabeth Warren has made not... You know, not doing fundraisers, a big part of it. She did a bunch of fundraisers. Yep. They gave her her first $10 million in seed money for this campaign. Bernie has gun positions that don't, that he's trying to square the circle on. Kamala Harris has supported Bernie's, co-sponsored Bernie's Medicare for All bill. Now it's a different, like, yeah. everyone has this problem. The question is, how well is Pete going to be able to execute this? Mm-hmm. And are people going to effectively call him out on it? Right, and that is if you don't effectively call them out, then it's your problem. No. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't, sure. you didn't figure it out. <laughs> that is you know? true. Democratic primary twenty twenty is your problem. <laughs> um, All right, let's talk about Bernie Sanders, who appeared in this debate just a few weeks after suffering a heart attack. He got questions about his health and his age, uh, but he was also very sharp and energetic in this debate. I thought um, here he is challenging Joe Biden's record. Joe, you talked yeah. about working with Republicans and getting things done. But you know what you also got done? And I say this as a good friend. You got the disastrous war in Iraq done. You got a bankruptcy bill, which is hurting middle class families all over this country. You got trade agreements like NAFTA and PNTR with China done, which, of course, does four million jobs. I'll say one thing about that exchange. Um, we've been talking about sort of the right way to go after Biden. A lot of people have gone after Biden in a whole bunch of different ways in this primary. To me going after his policies and his record, especially Iraq, trade deals, the bankruptcy bill, is, I think, probably with voters, the most effective way to go after Joe Biden. A lot of people are waiting. I think a lot of people think that foreign policy and experience is Biden's strength, right? Certainly Joe Biden does. He said it last night on stage. The challenge for him is that when he was asked last night to articulate what he would do differently in Syria, it wasn't the most coherent thing I've ever heard, it, nor was it particularly compelling. He often makes the point about, I've met with Putin, I've met with Erdogan. Like, I, I'm Maybe that works. It's certainly simple for voters to understand, but like, I didn't come away blown away by the, the net impact of that experience. And then 
Bernie consistently drops the fucking hammer on the Iraq war vote. And that he has not figured out how to counter that yet. We're on like round three or four of that exact same criticism. Yeah. Do you think voters still care about that? Uh, it's a great question. I'm sure it's diminishing. I have no idea. I'm sure it's diminishing in the minds of some voters, and especially for younger voters who are, you know, have aged into the electorate and weren't really around during the Iraq War debate. Maybe less so, but I think there's probably it's like issue five or six after one through four being electability. But I do think that there are a bunch of anti-war activists in Iowa that still can be pretty influential. Um, what do we think of Bernie's performance in general before we get to Biden stuff? Great. We should get his doctors. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he, he looked good. He looked, I mean, he was really strong. And this was a very important debate for Bernie because his campaign, because he'd been he'd fallen behind Warren in the polls. There had been some polls that show him getting closer to the bottom to the you know single digits in some cases. And there had been this sort of narrative of is this over for his campaign? And so he needed a strong showing. And he has put together. He had really good cash on hand numbers to come out. He had a good fundraising The highest quarter. of anyone else is the most he, cash on hand. He had a good debate performance and he's going to cap off this week with the endorsements of AOC, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar at a rally in Queens. And so he has reasserted himself as a force in this race and that was incredibly important. If he had had a, like a, a mediocre debate performance, it could have been pretty devastating to his chances. Bernie is not going anywhere. That that was that was that much clearer from last night. He is in this for the long haul, and um, and look, I think we back to the Medicare for all discussion. His response, I thought, on Medicare for all punching back at Biden and Buttigieg and Klobuchar was even stronger than Warren's last night because he had this moment where he said the Democratic Party has to have the guts to take on the insurance companies and the drug companies. And mm -hmm. it was really, and I saw someone, someone was conducting a focus group somewhere of Democratic voters. And they said that the, the focus group of voters much preferred Bernie's response actually to Warren's response in the, um, to, to Pete and Amy, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I think we saw, it's funny because before, long before we got to the health question, right? You can ask Bernie and Biden health questions they will answer those questions not in that moment, but in how they perform, right? That is what we were looking at. And Bernie was incredibly strong, I thought. You know, the, the moment I actually, I forgot to mention, which I think is important, is Elizabeth Warren, I think, for the first time connected, she made an argument against private insurance. She talked about how in her work in bankruptcy, you discover just how, how many medical-related bankruptcies are for people with insurance, which I think is one of the most compelling and important arguments for Medicare for all, not just a public option. But what Bernie did, I think, in the healthcare section, and I think what Bernie did was there was show why his, he's so strong. And I think sometimes I myself do this, we all do this. You get into the kind of the tactics and the strategy, but then you realize, wait, what actually makes a candidate incredibly strong in a debate is they have a compelling and faithful rationale for their candidacy that makes them unassailable, right? You know, Bernie can make that incredibly strong argument because it is something he has said forever. It is consistent. It is incredibly strong. It speaks to his values. It speaks to his genuine philosophical disagreement with the kind of politician Joe Biden is. And it means that the candidates are debating not on garnish, not on little things, not on things on the outskirts, but like they're facing each other kind of chest to chest, big stuff versus big stuff. And I think that's why we've seen Bernie have such strength. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls, 
Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It live on tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. So at one point, Biden and Warren tangled over the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, let's listen to that clip. I agreed with the great job she did. And I went on the floor and got you votes. I got votes for that bill. I convinced people to vote for it. So let's get those things straight, too. Senator Warren, do you want to respond? I am deeply grateful to President Obama, who fought so hard to make sure that agency was passed into law. And I am deeply grateful to every single person who fought for it and who helped pass it into law. But understand- You did a hell of a job in your job. Thank you. (laughs) But understand this, it was a dream big fight hard. People told me, go for something little, go for something small, go for something that the big corporations will be able to accept. I said, no, let's go for an agency that will make structural change in our economy. And President Obama said, I will fight for that. And he sometimes had to fight against people in his own administration. Was that you, Dan? We have to be willing to make (laughs) good big structural change why do we think joe biden got so mad there i don't know that was so bad it was bad the the angle i was watching we were all watching from i think he gestures at her and it looks so aggressive it sounded so petty and so condescending of all the things to grab credit for i don't know why he would lurch for credit for the formation of the cfpb what are you doing man and her response was poised and devastating and like he he really had a bad moment there. I'm surprised it's not getting more attention because, Me I mean, and look, it, it seemed we, sexist, it seemed condescending. Yeah, look, we, we criticized Castro for going too hard to Biden last debate, and I thought this was the same kind of aggressive tone. It's the same thing, and it was bad, you know? And I just, and also it's like, 
I'm talking even thinking about voters' minds, right? Like, I got these votes for you for like an agency that's good for everyone that we all agree on. Like, why are we making it about like I got the like as if like he was reluctant, but because he was yeah. a good soldier, he wouldn't got the votes. Voters like well versed in the whip count process, right? <laughs> right. Like, what are we talking about? Right? Like, have you, do you believe you've been robbed of your credit for Elizabeth Warren's signature achievement? I, mean, I know what it is. He's thinking to himself, I have been a good progressive Democrat. My whole life, I was a good foot soldier in the Obama administration. I did everything I was told. And now I'm running for president. Everyone's telling me I'm this corporate stooge moderate who doesn't care about anything. That's what's in his mind and the mind of his campaign. And every once in a while, there's these, you know, he can't he can't control these flashes of anger where he, you know, talks about that and how angry he is. Putting aside Biden's reaction to Warren, which I think is problematic for all the reasons you guys said, I think the point he's trying to make is it was really fucking hard to pass the bill that CFPB was in. Yeah. And whenever there was trouble getting something through the Senate, Mm -hmm. Biden would go to the Senate and he would deliver the votes. He did that on a whole range of things. And I think Ryan Grimm from The Intercept tweeted he covered the CFPB for a year or so and never, never ran into Biden in that process. I think it is true that in the formation, the policy development, the staffing of the CFPB, that was not something Biden was involved in. It wasn't in his policy portfolio. But it is true when we needed votes from a pretty conservative group of Democratic senators, Biden delivered those. And yeah. he, I don't think he made his point well, but it, like that is true. It also is a point that came out like if he had been directly accused by Elizabeth Warren or a moderator of you didn't care about the CFPB or you weren't there on that fight. And then he responded, say, actually, I was out there getting those votes. It would be totally legitimate to say that. But it sort of came out of nowhere is, is the it was is it was he's my, responding to the meta conversation right, the, not the actual that's thing. exactly and, right and, which and, was a, which was the reason it was a little right i mean just you know passing do- like it's it's and there is there is a real you know there is a real lesson right that biden could offer there right that like passing dodd frank right the, elizabeth warren brought an incredibly bold and innovative idea it's actually i to me it's before long before elizabeth warren was a candidate to me just from our time in the white house it was always to me an inspirational case of like of democracy because here she was just a a thinker an intellectual who had this idea for an agency that could protect consumers. And it through politics, uh, through the Obama administration, through victories and elections, like there was a an administration that was willing to embrace it and fight for it. And then it took an incredible amount of horse trading and, and difficult uh, politics to get Dodd-Frank through. In fact, the Consumer Financial Protection Agency had to be downgraded to a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau because of Trump, because in the fight to get it through, you had to make compromises that lo- downgraded it just a bit to put it inside of another agency just to get it done. And then after that, Elizabeth Warren, who was supposed to run the agency, got dinged. And so she wasn't able to even run the agency she created, again, just because of just just bargaining and politics that takes place, which I think Joe Biden has a case to, to make on why that's important and why he has expertise in it. Uh, what do we think of Biden's performance overall? I mean, I do think that he had... A few really strong moments um, when he was asked about his age and he said, you know, one of the reasons I think I'm, I'm running for president is because of my age and with age comes wisdom. Another when when, you know, Tommy, you were talking about this with foreign policy, his record on foreign policy, you could uh, you could ding a few times. But when he said, um, look, I've met with Erdogan, I've met with Putin, I've been, you know, like the, he, he did a better job last night than usual, I thought, talking up his experience and and his wisdom that came with experience, right? Um, so I thought he had some good moments there. But again, I think on other answers, he, you know, some of the other answers I couldn't follow again. I just, <laughs> just couldn't think, follow. Like, 
I have a ton of respect for Joe Biden. I think he's incredibly smart. He is experienced. He does have wisdom that comes from age. But like, I just I can't grade him on a curve. You know, he had a shitty week, and I'm waiting for him to walk into one of these debates and seem sharp and on his toes and on top of everything, and to do it with a smile, like the Joe Biden who debated Paul Ryan and Sarah Palin did, with that big beaming Joe Biden smile that could make every every uh, you know political shot go down easier. And instead, you get the like pointing at Elizabeth Warren shouting moments, which I think are just going to nullify anything else that happened that night. Yeah. I think Biden has begun to make a turn, right? And it is not a smooth turn, but it like moving an ocean liner. But he is deciding to make his experience an asset, mm-hmm. right? Which is something we've been talking about a long yeah. time. He's sort of been like trying to elide the age question, and now he's leaning into it in a way which is I've been here to do all these things because I have this experience to do all these things. I am the person best suited, not only to beat Trump, but to fix the problems that Trump has created. And that's a that's a very good argument to make. I think the the problem that for Biden that Tommy has pointed, I think very rightfully pointed out, is Biden has lost the happy part of Happy Warrior. Yeah, and that is very understandable. Like his family has been in the crosshairs from the President of the United States for the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. His son, who is incredibly important to him, I mean Joe Biden's connection to his children is, is so incredibly close and born in tragedy. And his son, who has struggled in his life, mm. you know, and and struggled in the public eye because of who his father was, is now being tweeted about by the president of the United States. Like, I think, I'm not trying to grade him on a curve. I'm just trying to create context for why we may not see the smile and the ability to laugh the stuff off that you otherwise, that we've seen from Biden in the past. Yeah. But I also think it's, and I don't think this is necessarily an age thing because Bernie Sanders is a year older and just had a heart attack a couple weeks ago and was as sharp as they come in this debate. But it's just this, I don't know if, and it usually happens to Biden when he's getting a little angry about things that the he becomes a little less coherent on some of these answers. Like he almost gets so ready to go that he just starts, you know, blabbing a little bit. It's just, I think you, I don't know. And I don't, it, look, it may not cost him among his supporters, but, it, you know, we can all see the trend lines in the race and he does need to sort of expand the universe of people who are supporting him at some point or at least not lose any more. Um but I don't know. I don't know if it serves him well. I think he's got to find a way to be sharper. I've been involved with prepping Biden for TV shows and interviews in the past. And he's someone who's pretty resistant to prep. I mean, mm. he, he, yeah. is, he knows what he wants to say, and he feels like he knows how to say it better. And he's usually right. Mm. He clearly has submitted to the prep process here. And it makes sense. He, as we've said before, he has the best debate preppers in all of Democratic politics working for him. But it sort of feels like he has 120 seconds worth of things to say, and he's trying to get him into 60 seconds. And he knows that. And it like you can he's, tell he knows that. He's just, like in that answer where he was going through his accomplishments, which should have been a very, very powerful moment. He tried to fit so many things in that you like saying you accomplished 12 things is not twice as good as saying you accomplished six things, right? Yeah. And I think that has been a problem. And you know, maybe <sighs> as these debates go on, he'll be able to get into a more natural balance between having the strategic benefits of being involved with a very good debate prep process and still maintaining the authenticity that is has been core to his political appeal for decades now. A uh, few more candidates who we haven't talked about yet. We should. Um, how effective was Cory Booker's strategy of constantly calling for democratic unity and focusing on Donald Trump? That was that was pretty much his play last night. Cory Booker, once again, was great. Yeah. He was likable. He had moments that caused people to clap. And as far as I can tell, he did nothing to advance his his path to the presidency. I do not understand. 
his theory of the case, his plan to win, how to change the dynamic of the race where he is at 3% in the polls. And I know, you know, we've said this before, his campaign says organize, organize, organize. And that is incredibly important. But you have to organize for something. You have to have a rationale. And it's just, it's not, I have, from the very beginning, as someone who really likes Cory Booker a lot and think he offers a lot, both in this presidential race and in American life, I have yet to figure out what he, like, what is his case for himself to be president? Why him over everyone else? Yeah, I, I get the, we're all, everyone on the stage is a good person. Everyone on here is better than Donald Trump. I, I get the, I, I respect the sentiment and I respect the, the strategy there. Um, I do think though, you know, and so like maybe it did work for him. Um, it hasn't to date, but maybe it did this time. I do think though that, you know, as we uh, were, you know, we, we pointed out that Pete has sort of changed strategy over time and it's a bit discordant. It's worth noting that after the last debate, I believe, Cory Booker went on TV and said that uh, people are worried that Joe Biden is too old and might fumble the ball before he gets over the goal line, right? Which is a pretty stark contrast <laughs> to the tone we see on the debate stage. So like, to me, it, it's interesting. He always seems sort of like kind of annoyed or bemused by the the question. It's like an odd, it, it, it rubs me an odd way, but I do very, I really like him as well. He feels like an outside, outside observer to this presidential campaign. Yeah. yeah, it's you know there was a there was a moment during one of the the little um you know scuffles I think uh, one one with Pete and 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 Booker comes in once again to say see this is what I'm talking about you know we can't do Donald what you know we have to we have to uh, not do Donald Trump's work for him or, or whatever the specific line was and it was an opportunity I think to kind of enter the debate right say what you think say why you think uh, it was Mayor, on the guns thing it was on the guns yeah say why you think Mayor Pete's full of shit. That's what you think. You, you, your face says that you think Mayor Pete's full of shit. Well, he's he, he said it last week. He also thinks, right, he also thinks that Beto came to the issue too recently. Yeah, he, he has problems with both of them. Those yeah. would have been interesting interesting things to say. I would yeah. have wanted to hear them. And yeah. and I and I guess, like, to me, I think I've always found the promise of Cory Booker as a candidate uh, quite real. And I think it's – and it's something he he kind of shows you little glints of. And, and, and when he talks about – love and, and embracing people you disagree with and, and, a, and a deeper understanding of what it means to be part of politics. Like I have, I just, you know, I talked to him about him when, when, when I, when I interviewed him, like I, I just, I keep waiting for like the, the meat on the bone that says, okay, if you have this different take, show me what it means in policy, show me what it means in politics, show me what it means in how you conduct yourself as a candidate. And because he sort of stays to these platitudes in the debate, you never see it. And I've just been waiting to see it. And once again, uh, I didn't. I guess um, if I were trying to guess what the Booker campaign strategy is and what and what Booker's strategy was last night, they're all trying to become the alternative to the third alternative to Biden and Warren Bernie, a <laughs> uh, fourth alternative, right? And Booker's case is I'm going to be the one who is all about bringing this country together and not attacking my fellow candidates. I mean, like you said. <laughs> He has not been there all along because he has been taking shots here and there. But last night, clearly his strategy was, I'm going to be the guy that when all these people are fighting and taking shots at Warren or Biden or whatever else, I'm going to stand back. And people are not are going to want that. People are going to want someone who can bring someone together and talk about love and talk about unity and all that kind of stuff. So I think, I think that's his plan. Whether it works, who knows? Um, Julian Castro... Uh, was he had been more aggressive in past debates last night? I think he was much more subdued. I think, look, as someone who had criticized him in the past for being too aggressive, I really liked the Julian Castro that showed up last night. I thought he did a great job. I thought he, you know, he had a lot of really strong answers. And I thought, you know, I thought, but it, it again, it's a question for you brought up Dan for Castro, for Booker, for Beto, um, for a lot of these candidates, like. 
what's your plan to get out of two, three percent? And I think this isn't an easy it's not an easy thing to solve, right? Because if it was, you'd just be like, okay, attack other candidates, and that's how I get it. But there are risks with attacking other candidates. There are risks with being too aggressive that we've talked about a lot. On the other end of the spectrum, there's risks with not standing out and just giving pat answers. So and you when you're in these campaigns, you're like, how do we get attention, like Tommy said, without coming across as too aggressive or unfair or too calculated. And that's a really tough challenge at this stage of the race. It's really tough. And it's tough not because just it's it's not really a tactical question. Part of the issue is that the three front runners represent the kind of broad uh, ideological divisions of the democratic movement. You have Joe Biden representing the center to center left. You have Bernie representing the left and you have Elizabeth Warren uh, toward Bernie, but but basically saying that I will, you know, pretty talk, left, pretty, pretty. <laughs> no, but what I was a pretty left while uh, establishment try, friendly, friendly left, establishment friendly left saying I, I, you know, she's capitalist. Bernie's a Democratic socialist, but I'm but I'm but I'm not a moderate like Joe Biden. And, and so into that, I think all of these other candidates have struggled for months and months uh, to find a way to uh, get into that conversation and, and, and show why they are uniquely suited to be the nominee. And I think we see various efforts to, I'm sorry, that's it. Uh, Andrew Yang, Andrew Yang on stage again last night, continues to raise a good amount of money, continues to poll uh, higher than some of the other candidates on the stage last night. What do we think? How, how, did, how did Yang do? With the possible exception of Donald Trump running on racism, Andrew Yang is the most successful single issue candidate in history. Yeah. I mean, he. Well, they all talked about uh, well, like, universal basic tax. income last like, night. He, yeah, he <laughs> ran. He put that the, in the debate. Yeah. He made that a debate issue. And last it was night. It got a very serious discussion in front of what I assume was millions of Americans, and put it squarely in the middle of the policy discussion in this country. And for that, he should be applauded. And, and apparently, Elizabeth Warren went up to him after the debate last night and said, "Could you please send me the data yeah. on UBI and the details of your plan and everything?" Because I'm really. He, and he was pumped about it, Dan. Uh, what you just said about Steve Forbes is disgraceful, and I think you need to <laughs> Don't apologize, arrest Steve Forbes. Yeah, like Tommy like, won't admit this, but he voted for Steve Forbes. <laughs> big Forbesy, <laughs> Forbes head. Uh, look, flat tax, Tommy. You gotta like <laughs> credit. You, you see these debates. We all offer some subjective opinion about what we think happened or what voters will think. But then there's a bunch of data in terms of fundraising and polling. And Andrew Yang is an unmitigated success story. You can't like Andrew Yang two years ago was a guy with a, with one eye, one big idea about universal basic income. And now he's duking it out on stage with Elizabeth Warren about automation. Like that's pretty unbelievable. Yeah. It's yeah. also, yeah, it's interesting. I know we, we get, you know, these debates can be very frustrating, but just stepping back, we've seen actually, really good and interesting shifts in the policy discussion as a result of this primary, whether it's sort of UBI leading to a discussion of UBI versus a jobs guarantee, both incredibly big, uh, would be incredibly bold and 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 and, and new policies. Uh, the wealth tax, I think Beto has moved the, the debate on guns. I think Julian Castro uh, moved the debate on immigration. We can be critical of some of the ways in which he's moved it, but he's certainly- And police reform. And police reform as well. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm forgetting a few, but, but we've seen that in this debate. Like there has been- you know, genuine uh, uh, policy focus uh, in these campaigns, and I actually think one of the one of the interesting things in these debates, I think partly because I think moderators have been a little cowed by Twitter and afraid to be called frivolous. The debate questions have been such big policy questions. That's why we have big immigration questions, big healthcare questions. Uh, but actually, there hasn't been a lot of like Ellen and George Bush. Well, yeah, uh. yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> well, it's you know not perfect, but uh, uh, I think one of the reasons we've seen it stay at these sort of big policy levels is because there's been such a focus on policy from the candidates. And finally, let's uh, end where we began. Tom Steyer, 
<laughs> first uh, first debate, uh, first time on the stage. What do we think? Uh, how do we? How did Tom Steyer do? He did good. I mean, he. I mean, he did. Like he. He. <laughs> like he has a message. He delivered it. It's, he, it's a lot like Warren and Bernie's message. Very close. There's something interesting about a billionaire saying, "Tax me yeah. more." It's the Roosevelt trader to their cat class yeah. Uh, yeah. argument, which yeah. Trump pretended to be. Yeah, a lot of eye contact. Not sure Trump how I feel double agent for his class. With us. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of eye contact yes. with me specifically. <laughs> yeah, no, staring into your soul. <laughs> me and Tommy Styes were, were locking eyes all night long. I yeah, like someone the told him like, look, on that stage, you're not talking to the other candidates or the audience. Right. You're talking right into that camera, which is you know the piece of advice that you do give people who are prepping for debate. But he he took that advice and he ran with it. But again, yeah. in, in terms of just like success, right l- along the same lines as Andrew Yang, I mean. Tom Steyer spent shitloads of money to run ads and get donors million dollars, and got fact. himself on the stage. So he had a very expensive strategy, executed it, and here he is. Yeah, I mean, it's also, I'm very glad that that the billionaire on that stage is not saying we need to be nicer to billionaires, yes. we need to be more moderate, we need to attack the center. Street. It's not the kind of- It's not uh, Howard Schultz. Right, it's not <laughs> the, I'm fi- right, it's not Howard Schultz. It's not, I'm fiscally, I'm fiscally conservative, but socially liberal. It's It's actually, I think- a bet that basically you want what it's it's implied, but it's basically saying you want what Elizabeth Warren is offering, but you don't think she can win. Uh, take a look at me; I'm a businessman like Trump. Yeah, but the tough the implied right? I mean, there that you is. don't think she can win is because you have all the same policy positions as her. Basically, you don't think she can win because she's a woman. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm not saying Tom Tom Steyer said that, but I what I didn't get from him last night is what is speci- why you and not. Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, what specifically are you going to do differently than the two of them since your message is so similar? What, you know, what qualifications do you have? I guess he said, you know, I started a business. So if you like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's message and policies, but you like the idea of a businessman in the White House, then I guess you got tongue. You like someone who can make the arguments they're making from a, while pushing, while, while batting down the arguments that they don't understand how the world works, right? That, that's sort of, that's the, I think the, the fair reading of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had, um, basically like a full day worth of debates in this primary. Yeah. Like hours at a time. And like with the exception of Klobuchar and Pete tonight, almost no other candidate who's not in the top three has had any success making an argument for why them, why not the others. And so yeah. the fact that Tom Sire did not do that only does not mean that he is failing where others have succeeded. He's just doing exactly as what? well as most everyone else in the same tier he's in. Well, which brings me to the final question. Do we think this debate you know, will, do we think this debate will change the race in any way? Has this changed the race or reshaped the race in any way? I, you know, I do think it's, it's notable that both Buttigieg and Klobuchar came out swinging last night and that's going to get most of the attention today. Most of the headlines today are moderates fight back last night, which has been what moderates have been trying to do for the last three debates and haven't really done successfully until last night. So I do wonder if it was a bit more of an important debate than usual. I think it's a preview for what's to come. I think we see the race has been the exact same place since the very beginning, with the exception of Elizabeth Warren rising from third or fourth to second. Mm. And now we're seeing, I think, what the campaign can look like. I think for the first time, we've seen people land a punch on Elizabeth Warren, who otherwise has been untouched and flawless in all these debates. I still think by any measure, she was excellent last night, delivered her points. But there was some weakness. You could see some cracks where people might be able to exploit it over time. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think this debate is going to change the poll numbers, but I think we know more about how the candidates are thinking about the race than we have at any point before now. I agree. All can right, I say then. one more thing, though? You sure can. I think the most important thing that happened last night with the most consequences for the race is not what happened in the debate. It's the release of the uh, Q3 oh, FEC yeah. reports. We haven't talked about that. 
and which showed Bernie Sanders with the most money, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg behind, behind, but was still with a with in the twenties of millions of dollars, and Joe Biden, co front runner, as you called him, um, with less than nine million dollars, which is pretty shocking, stuff devastating. Like Joe Biden's path to nomination is to be able to organize and advertise in the Super Tuesday states because he, because of his high name recognition, his how well known he is in the party, he is the ability in his broad base of support. His path to nomination involves racking up delegates, racking up delegates, and everything that happens after the first four states. And right now, he does not have enough money to run a full campaign in two of the four states, let alone four states and everything that comes after. And he has shown zero ability to raise money online. So he does not have the capacity that a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or even a Pete Buttigieg would have to refill his coffers. And I think I think that is a fundamental game changer. It's going to cause the Biden campaign to make some very serious, very hard decisions about where he's going to play. If one of these candidates had just bit the head off an Ellen doll like Ozzy Osbourne and spit it out on stage, this thing would be over. <laughs> that last question. Ellen. Who's nope. your weirdest friend? Skip climate, the, like climate sheets. No, reproductive race. No, yeah. weirdest friend. Ellen, weirdest friend. We cool. <laughs> Everyone say John McCain all at once. <laughs> skip the rest of the question. I John McCain and uh, and then and then for Cory Booker, someone who ate meat, <laughs> which, which Sarah, Sarah Lazarus <laughs> predicted <laughs> yeah. like verbatim. It was uh, amazing. John, your wife Emily said that I'm her weirdest friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's always been true. That's always been true. I think, you're, you're I think all you, of our John McCain. I think that was part of your uh, speech at our wedding. That's true. That's true. We're like when a turtle and a rabbit become friends at the zoo. <laughs> all right, everyone. We will. Um, we again. We will have no pod Thursday because this pod is out Wednesday, and then we will. Uh, we'll see you next week. Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Carolyn Reston, Tanya Sominator, and Katie Long for production support, and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Conian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as a video every week. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet, starting at $19.99 per month, offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com.